Hello and welcome to Brains Bike Back. This is the podcast where we look at how our psychology, our brains and everything about us within society is impacted by, well, how we work with technology and live side along technology. This episode is a really interesting one. I think this is one of the best talks I think I've ever had, let alone in this podcast, but also potentially in life. Um, it was really eye-opening. Today, we're going to be discussing our future and what it will look like with the potential of universal basic income and AI, artificial intelligence. So imagine this, if we move into a future where AI slowly takes over our jobs and universal basic income becomes more prevalent, what is our future going to look like? What are our jobs going to look like? What is work even going to consist of? This is a really interesting topic and I really wanted to find out more on this. So I brought two very knowledgeable experts in both these fields. Um, my first guest today is an award-winning engineer, economist and author who is running for US Congress. He is also a strong advocate for UBI, James Felton Keith. Alongside him, I'm also joined by ex-computer engineer for NASA, who holds an advanced degree in computer science from Cambridge University and frequently gives talks on the existential threats of artificial intelligence, Peter Scott. And for our extra feature today, we have good news. Usually, the news isn't always that good, let's face it. So, to help brighten up your day, we have a story on clean technology that is being tested out at Burning Man. Stay tuned for that. Disclosure, this episode includes a client of an Espacio portfolio company. Let's get started. Um, so, I'm really pleased to have you guys here. This is a really interesting topic for me and I think that I wanted to get an expert on both uh, univer universal basic income and also artificial intelligence because I think the two are going to be very close-knit, I guess, in our future from, from what I can tell, perhaps. So I suppose, first of all, would you be able to each tell me a little bit about yourselves and what kind of um, knowledge or experience you have in your areas? James, I brought you on as my UBI expert and obviously Peter is my AI expert. Peter, would you be able to explain your experience in this industry and a little bit about who you are? Certainly, like you, I came from the United Kingdom. I was born there, went to Cambridge University for computer science, moved from there to the United States to work for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, moved from there about 20 years ago and kept working for them remotely, but as an independent contractor, I also branched out into things like coaching and other things that seemed to me as important as the technology itself in order to keep things working. And for the last three years, I've been engaged in bringing awareness about the problems as well as the promise of exponential technology growth and have recently founded an institute, the Next Wave Institute, to work with educational institutions to bring greater understanding and uh, abilities to people to help survive and thrive through technological disruption. Thank you. And uh, James, would you be able to give us a little bit of background about yourself and obviously your experience with uh, UBI? Sure. Uh, well, uh, my background is I'm uh, born in Detroit originally, uh, left Detroit around 1999. I'm a New Yorker uh, now, 
Uh, I'm running for U.S. Congress in the 13th District of New York. That's uh, everything in Manhattan above Central Park and um, a little piece of the Bronx uh, called, you know, Kingsbridge and Marble Hill. And my, my background with regards to UBI really started in the technological space. Um, I'm an engineer and economist by trade. I went to school, you know, mostly over here in, in the U.S. and uh, Michigan and Alabama and Massachusetts. And I was a software engineer for a while, uh, pretty much before I graduated from secondary school. So I'll say the past 30 years. And then uh, the past 20 years, I was really trained as a mechanical engineer and spent a lot of my time using software tools, AI tools to automate the processes with which we make decisions. And I started to see an acceleration of productivity company by company and sort of from a macro standpoint, while wages weren't really scaling. And so I spent the latter part of my career, really the last 10 years, looking at how we might be able to better distribute, not necessarily redistribute, the value uh, that comes from our increased productivity. And so my foray into universal basic income really started, again, about 10 years ago, challenging the idea of UBI to sort of transform its old rhetoric, you know, the, the rhetoric that mostly Martin Luther King and people like Milton Friedman used, which is really riddled in welfare. I'm a product of welfare, and it's, it's a great program. It should always provide a floor in any economy, any developed economy, but it just doesn't scale. And so I was looking for the most micro entity that I could distribute uh, authority to individuals for. And that turned out to be data. And so my foray into universal basic income has really been about 10 years of policy advocacy and building institutions that advocate for policy that uh, instructs individual ownership of personal data as I recognize it as the sort of most seminal input to any economic productivity. I think that as technologies, as AI scales, I think that we'll have to do a much better job of assigning ownership to the productivity from that scalability so that we can prop up an economy. And that looks like uh, a universal basic income, sort of the payout that comes from owning a, a micro entity like data comes in the fashion of a universal basic income, but it comes in the fashion of an equity stake instead of the old welfare. So I've sort of grown in the UBI over the course of the past 30 years while uh, being a part of a generation that, that watched automation really take its course. And could you explain a little bit about um, how, maybe, I suppose in its most basic form without any kind of technical jargon, how would this work? Because you talked about like a, um, uh, data or like um, you talked about, essentially, I suppose what I'm trying to say is where would this money come from and how would, how would we get it? Sure. So the most basic thing that I try to leave people with when we're talking about economics around data is all economists, we all agree that productivity at the corporate level, and to be clear, productivity is just revenues, is really just a measure of inputs. And I mean every single input that goes into that productivity. And the most micro input that goes into any productivity is one's personal data. It can come either from an employee or a consumer, right? So the most micro thing I want people to understand is that all productivity is a measure of inputs. And the way the basic income works is we give people ownership 
of that micro input to productivity so that as productivity proliferates, we can then have a legal conversation about how we distribute the majority of that productivity back to the individuals who were a part of that productivity's design. Um, so it's, it's really, it's not a, a very technical conversation really at all. It's the idea that if I give you an ownership stake of a productive entity, that you should be paid a dividend or an equity stake from that productive entity. Okay, um, that, does, that, that does make more sense. Um, Peter, um, one question which I'd really love to ask you is that you, there seems to be a lot of fear and understandably so that AI is gonna be taking jobs but then there's also a lot of headlines that say AI is going to produce more jobs than it takes. Um, do you believe that's true? Like, what is your opinion on this? I don't think we know either way. I think both of those are an act of faith because we're looking at what's happened in the past with technological change. And every time in the past there's been technological progress, it's ended up creating jobs that didn't exist before. No one 30 years ago was planning on becoming a search engine optimization specialist. And so we have created all of these, but just because something has been true in the past doesn't mean that it's going to be true in the future. And when we have machines that can think like humans, then what's left for us? So it's a big question as to when we might reach that, that stage. And some uh, estimates of that range from a few years away to never. But uh, I, I think we shouldn't be complacent and think that just because we've managed in the past that this transition is going to be uh, equally smooth or equally beneficial. I agree. I mean, we, we can't fully say uh, one way or the other. Uh, I would add, I think... The, the real problem around when we talk about AI and jobs right now is we're only used to talking about economic inclusion for people who don't own companies uh, from a standpoint of jobs. And that's really the problem. I think any labor economist would agree right now that there are plenty of jobs. AI has actually created more. That may not be the case in the future, uh, to the earlier point. But for now, it looks like the more tech we have, the more jobs are, that are being created. I think the real problem is really around income and the political or psychological impacts around what value is and who is valuable in the future. Uh, I think as long as our, as our work, at least our legal work, is geared around making sure that the AI and or the machines that produce it are not what's valuable, and that the people that need products and services are what's valuable, then I, I think that we'll be in a safe space. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited about just where we're going technologically in general. I just think that the heavy lifting is really rhetorical and legal. One thing which I really like to put to both of you, I have this preconception, I don't know if it's true, but when I do hear these headlines of AI taking jobs but also giving jobs back, um, in my mind, it's like it takes jobs from some people, say, for example, truckers, yep. their, their job might be automated pretty soon. I don't know when, um, but it looks like they're going to be out of work pretty soon. But then when we say AI gives jobs, in my mind, I can imagine it's college graduates who've just graduated from some computer or some kind of subject relating to AI or some kind of programming or something technical. Am I correct in thinking that as there's a wave of 
people kind of exiting the workforce because of AI. Then there's also a wave of people entering because of AI, and they're two very different types of people. Or um, I suppose, Peter, do you think that my <laughs> my uh, preconception is accurate, or am I completely uh, misconstrued? <laughs> well, there is a huge number of openings for AI people at the moment. They can command huge salaries, but I think we have to look at where are the jobs being created and where are they being lost? Because if you go back 100 years and look at the automobile revolution, someone who used to drive a handsome cab with with horses could relatively easily make the transition to driving a motorized vehicle as a, as a cab. But if we have now, uh, for instance, uh, people making fast food burgers being replaced by machines that can do that, uh, are they likely to be able to transition to the jobs of the people that design those machines? Are the truckers likely to be able to transition to the jobs of the people that design the automated trucks? There seems to me that there could be a, a large disparity there that, and that we've uncoupled the progress uh, engine, if you will, from the uh, places where its effects are being applied. I agree. I, I don't necessarily know that um, <clears throat> the people exiting, you know, one type of work will be replaced with a, a, a totally new type of person. I think the majority of the jobs that are going to grow in the future are really going to be service, you know, sector jobs. So it'll be people honing soft skill sets to communicate with other people around the technologies that they're using. So sure, you know, trucking jobs, cashier jobs, et cetera, they will they will start to become automated away through our use, our better use of business process that will eventually feed AI to make the most normalized decisions as it possibly can. But uh, again, we've, we've seen a surge in those types of jobs. And I think it is necessary, though, as we talk about the changes in jobs to sort of, when we think about universal basic income uh, as a pivot, to also state that... Uh, that there's a broader moral issue around universal basic income that is trying to decouple us from conversations about jobs alone as a means to income or further as a, a method of understanding one's worth in society. So the UBI, while I am normally touting its relevance because I think that we have a very real uh, productivity-related mechanism to distribute it, meaning I give people ownership stake of productive processes, right? The, the, the real deal behind that is even if you do leave a trucking job and you don't go into the service sector to manage someone's anxiety for talking to AI all day, and you say, I don't want to get a job, I want to re-explore my life altogether, you should have the right to do that as well. You should not have to earn the right to live. And by earn, I mean you should not have to toil away the whole time just to be able to stay alive because it's inhumane. So, so over the course of the past, let's say 200,000 years, we've only talked about people's value relative to how they work or what type of work they do, meaning what type of toiling they do. And in the future, in the very near future, I think in this new decade, in the, the 20s, we will start to see evidence of people being valuable without the coupling of normalized work, meaning 
people should be able to get paid if AI is understanding how they exist and providing them products and services because they are an input or creating the initial demand to the productivity of products and services coming to them. But yeah, I think that's that's really where we're going. We're decoupling from jobs altogether. They will exist, but they will not be the sole measure for who gets to participate in society. And we will not talk about people's relevance as which jobs they move away from and which jobs they navigate towards. Well, I, I agree. And if I could jump in here, I think one of the the, uh, the fundamental uh, broad issues here is the question of whether our current mechanism of wealth distribution will survive the changes in productivity that uh, or artificial intelligence and similar technology can bring about because we've seen this pattern over the last 50 years that productivity gains from new technology have accrued to a, a small percentage of the population and have not been distributed over the, the rest. And so the likely outcome of even more technology that automates even more jobs is, is that it would not get shared with those people. Where is it going to end up? And do we have to change our fundamental ways in which we think about and engineer wealth distribution? Uh, the way I like to introduce this with an analogy is to say, look, think back about a hundred years or so, or maybe not even that much, to visions of the future that they had then. And they would always be utopian, right? You would have people in saying, well, in the future, and it would be a lot of people that were well-dressed and incredibly well-informed on how their economy worked and uh, limitless abundance. And they would be not wanting. There would be little to no inequality. And if you could go back to someone 50 years ago and time travel and say, well, here I am, I've come from 2019. Uh, what questions do you have? And they say, well, what sort of things do you have? Yeah. And you explain the internet and microwaves and space travel and all and, and so forth, all this technology. And you, they would say, wow, that's incredible for you to have those things at that time. There must be no one in your time who is unnecessarily sick or poor or hungry. And then you would have to say, well, not so much. We, we still pretty much have those things. And <laughs> we could have we could have got rid of them, but we just didn't figure out how to distribute the money or the food or the benefits due to a, a paucity, a deficit in our imagination of how to do that. We are hung up on the notion that people have to prove their worth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both of you have made um, really good points that resonated with me. I, I, like you said, James, when you spoke about UBI being, it kind of gives someone a breathing space, room to breathe, to find of, uh, I suppose, find how they can add value to the world. And that's not necessarily, like you say, toiling away or slaving away at something, and that's their only way of adding value. It reminded me of a friend, actually, uh, she's Swedish, and she takes great pride in the Swedish welfare system and she said that one of the reasons why, and this is her opinion, but um, one of the reasons why Sweden's produced so many good bands, she says, or good music or good artists is because they have that breathing room where it, they, they can take time to kind of work on their, their art or their craft and then make a success out without having to like uh, pour their time into like just working at McDonald's or just like slaving away at a job which, which maybe they want to do. Not that I've got anything against people who work at McDonald's. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah. Also, with, yeah, sorry, I go mean, ahead. 
I mean, do the sweets do bands? I don't know. Well. <laughs> But um, you, um, Peter, you mentioned as well about uh, about Utopia, this idea that um, technology and in the future we will be a, uh, at a level where there is this equality among, or a greater sense of equality and less of disparity between the, the rich and the poor. Um, do you think that, do both of you, I suppose, think that we could ever achieve this as a society? Or is it ever possible where we could achieve a society where AI pretty much does everything and then we have very little to do and maybe we do get by on UBI or some other system where we still kind of operate without having to do any kind of work, I guess? Peter, would you like to go first? I think we live in a society that in, in certain places in particular at the moment wants to keep inequality yeah. and, and would have a hard time tolerating the benefits of quality through uh, utopian visions. And that that's the, the main thing that we need to change here. Some countries, obviously, like Sweden, do it better. I moved from the USA to Canada and here I don't have to worry about health care. And that enables me to function more productively as a solopreneur. It is this mindset. And some countries are, all of us to some extent, are bound up in these rather Puritan uh, notions of you must work. Uh, idle hands do the devil's work. And, yes. and you've, you've got to produce it all yourselves. And I don't think we're acknowledging where all of the inputs, as, as James says, are. Uh, are, are coming from and going to in our economic system. Yeah, I know, I agree. Well, I agree wholeheartedly. And even, you know, even the question about if we can get to this place and if it's utopian, I'll say just to, I guess, define myself a bit further is I'm not a sort of utopian. I'm not even an egalitarian. I'm not saying everyone has worked the exact same amount, but I am thinking and I am of the group that thinks that we're doing a poor job of distributing the value that is in the economy. And um, as we talk about sort of how the future can work, I'm still optimistic about our ability to do well and that I think the work is a political feat, though. You know, I used to be, I guess, what I would call a technological utopian. I used to think so highly of myself that I could produce a solution to any problem. As a process engineer, that's essentially what we do. We try to map out boxes and vectors to show how things work and, and trap energy or resources to move in our favor. But uh, as I transitioned over to economics, I realized that it would be great if more economists would look at the movement of value and the way that mechanical, electrical, and chemical engineers look at the movement of energy. And if we are to look at value and to accept your uh, scenario in a world where AI does everything, or I would say most things, because there are still some things that AI won't do. You know, the, the most enjoyable things about being a human are probably uh, food, sex, and, and general companionship. And that's stuff that AI won't do for us. And if, if our goal are to participate in those things, then I think that AI is just distributing to us products and services that help us do that better, hopefully. Right? And so if they are going to do that better, they be in AI then that means that all of our movements, which may seem like the mundane processes of just being alive, will create the necessary demand for those products and services to be distributed to us. And it doesn't mean that humans will stop doing things. It will mean that we have engineered away enough of our hardship to be able to acknowledge that we are what's valuable and that things should be catered to us. It is a very 
human-centric idea to say that UBI should exist and that we shouldn't have to earn the right to live. And I think that there's potential to do that, but I don't think that it's a technological solution. I, mo I mainly moved over into working for trade associations and writing policy and having these kinds of conversations because I realized the real problem is convincing people that they are valuable enough to warrant any of these payouts. And I think there's a large faction of society. I even see people on my Twitter account right now who respond, I don't think that we're that valuable if we look at our data. And whether they're trying to be the, econ the lay economists on Twitter and try to dig through the numbers or not, it really says a lot to their character and how they feel about themselves. I've had people try to explain to me why they don't need a universal basic income because they, they'll say that it's going to drive them up into a new tax bracket and they'll end up paying out most of it in taxes. And my response to them is still, well, would you like 50 extra dollars a month if you assume you'll pay a whole lot of taxes? And as the person is baffled and we usually have these conversations in large audience, what usually happens is their rejection or their uh, explanation of their lack of esteem about their own value, it usually does the workforce of indoctrinating everyone else to say, you are certainly valuable enough to warrant some distribution of the value in the economy, the tangible value. And so I'm hopeful. I just think we have to have a conversation with everyone. And that's why we'll jump on these podcasts. Well, I'm encouraged that here we are talking about something that would have been beyond the pale a decade ago. Uh, yeah, and sure. I, I think of UBI as maximizing the value of your workforce. And think of how much more value people could contribute if they're not worrying about where their next meal is going to come from, not worried about schooling their children, not worried about how to get to their workplace. If, if those basic things are taken care of, what are they free to contribute with the, yes. the, the time that they've got left over? I really want to uh, ask James about your ideas about data here. And it sounds like individuals monetizing that for uh, their, own, their own benefit. I'm wondering whether you think that something like the GDPR as regulation would be a step yeah. in that direction or not? Yes. So I, I authored 36 initial entries of recommendation to the GDPR. So I'm extremely proud that it exists and that we're starting to prop up small GDPRs in states like Ohio, which I just left, in Colorado and Virginia. And there's a bit of a crumbling one in, in California that, that doesn't have the namesake. Uh, but mainly even the, uh, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners here in the United States as a lobbying arm is pushing GDPRs across the country right now. And I think that per data, it is the most valuable piece of legislation that we have, period. Not only across the 28 states of the EU, but also the personal data protection regulation in Singapore and how that's starting to pervade East Asia and similar things that are starting to happen uh, in Africa. And so per those, I think that my hope, at least, for data to not necessarily just become this thing that people are bartering and charging for themselves, I want data to, to become ubiquitous, right? So it's, I'm not necessarily saying via GDPR style legislation that I want Facebook to give me $5 a month. I think Facebook is a great company, but I think they're a good window to how our real value happens in caucus, in community. And what I do want is an equity stake, a residual 
monthly, annually, quarterly, you name it, on that real value that proliferates. The GDPR, to get back to your the basis of your question, I think is a catalyst for us to make the legal argument that people are entitled to not only a piece of these big data companies, but a piece of every single company. Because every company makes decisions based on inputs from individuals, whether they be consumers or, or employees. And the rights that we've been hiding in cybersecurity laws, which was really the point of the GDPR, uh, at least per the Mer- Americans who were involved early on with the Irish and then with the Germans, and then it pervaded the EU. The objective was to build out the right to erasure, the right to portability, the right to restrictive processing, and three others that we're working on here in the United States, like the right to education, the right to redress, and the right to outright ownership. So that when we go to court and say that Google, Amazon, Facebook, and you name it, absolutely owe us some money, that we can make a proof-based argument based on the data that they should be pouring into a sovereign wealth fund so that we can pay for this $2 trillion universal basic income. Thank you. Um, And that propels me to make a kind of uh, geeky comparison at this point that comes to mind. There is uh, something called the extended mind hypothesis from a pair of gentlemen called Clark and Chalmers, which makes this uh, point going back uh, some decades in philosophy that something that is outside of your brain, but which you use in performing uh, cognitive acts like a notebook uh, or, or Google, uh, should be yeah. considered to be part of your mind for the purpose of, of cognition. And uh, when I think about yes. that, I th- that, it occurs to me that I can now make the, the, the case that my Facebook feed is part of my mind. It totally is. And it's not just it's not just that, like usually when I talk about data, because it is it sort of has this rigid identity now and people think about the data that they're producing or they think about people who have a smartphone versus people who sleep on the subway. What I'm essentially saying is personal data is not just information that you disseminate, but also information that can be derived about you. And so everything that is your essence or the fact that you exist in society really validates, I think, three core philosophical rules. And they are, first, that you have an intrinsic value. And you have it mainly in 2019 because I can prove it on a spreadsheet right now. Uh, And that's sort of the extended mind. Number two, we only derive that value from interactions with each other, transactions with each other. And there's sort of the notion that value like that of energy cannot be created or destroyed, but it can change form. And thirdly, uh, that people are entitled to an equity stake in the value that proliferates from their interactions. So you have it, we get it from each other, and you're entitled to a piece of the pie. And that is all based in evidence of how we exist in this time, which has never really existed before. We've theorized about it, but we haven't had evidence that these theories are true. And now that we do, I think that we can make unbeatable cases in courts of law. Someone asks me often about legislation to get towards a universal basic income, but it's actually not a legislative tool. Our will be done. We've tucked human rights laws into every cybersecurity law that we've ever written, and that'll keep going on. And it'll keep passing because people don't know any better uh, who might try to block it. And we'll just make case law arguments around what we're owed. And I think per our general understanding about what we're owed, if lawyers and politicians are saying similar things, the basic incomes of the world will start to proliferate. So, yes. 
I, I hear that you're, you're saying that, well, if I could uh, put another uh, interpretation on it, that we're transitioning to an information-based economy. And just as Alaska had an oil-based economy and declared a dividend sure. or UBI to its citizens based on its oil income, we can do the same with information? Yes. I think the, the best way to look at that is, so we've been in information. So all of the most developed economies uh, in the world, including the, the Asian economies that are very developed, realized about you know 60 or 70 years ago that they had to transition to having good information and really markets proliferated as a result. I mean, they had good legal structure. They had good market-based infrastructure of, around the institutions that did the transactions or did the business in those places. And I think about economists that I actually pretty much dislike, like Hernandez de Soto, who writes and talks extensively about the need for an adequate information-based economy in order for truth to proliferate. And as truth proliferates, trust can be established between entities that are not connected at their root. And trust itself ends up becoming a lot of our capital. I mean, all of our capital essentially is a trust. It's why even here in the United States, we write in God, we trust on our capital. If I give you a dollar and you give that to Sam and he buys, I don't know, ice cream cone with it. What we're really saying is we all trust between the three of us that that cone is about worth that dollar. And so as we've even moved into crypto style instruments to facilitate that trust, it is rooted in the same ideas that the information that we have about ourselves uh, and the storage of that and the ability to reference that is the core of, um, of our value in general. And so it dwarfs everything else, including oil. I don't think of data as a new oil anymore. I think of it as the new matter. We will put a data point on every moving particle and we will watch it all move and we will distribute everything adequately if we have any moral regard for the safety of humanity. And that needs to be our politics. And and maybe this points the way to answering the questions about, well, what will we do or how will we find value and, and meaning if we're in a society that essentially has all the work done for it by machines? And I, I think of that as a, a question of yeah. what what does it mean to be human, which is, well, I remember that uh, one of the workers in AI says that the reason he does that is because the more he learns about artificial intelligence, the more he learns about himself. And I think mm. that artificial intelligence is holding up a mirror to our uh, society and humanity, and it will do in, with increasingly greater clarity, mm -hmm. and that it will force us to confront these questions. Well, what does it mean to be human? Here now is a machine doing a job that I thought was safely mine, was going to be mine forever, belonged to my father and my grandfather, and now a machine does it better. Maybe it's a, yes. one day it's a radiologist, another day it's a paralegal, and this is going to go on and on. But I think this is a good thing to, to be forced to uh, undergo those kind of questions because those questions are what separate us from machines. Machines give us answers, people give us questions. And yes. the higher level questions that we can ask and engage with, the more we will find meaning in being human in a world where it doesn't matter if there are machines sweeping the roads or taking care of our illnesses because 
we will have found something that can't be taken away no matter what they're doing. I, I agree 100%. And I think a lot of our work or toiling that will still go on will be monitoring the machines to make sure that they honor the human. Yeah. And as we move into this quantifiable space, I, I feel like we are quantifying whatever the mesh of life is. And, and if we talk about it, politically at least, like it is God, if, if we talk about these quantified times in a more religious tone, I think that we really have the potential to not only solve the problem of distributing value and indemnifying people for their existence here, but also bringing folks together to let them know you don't need to fear your neighbor uh, mm-hmm. and their potential to do anything in order to be, as you say, a good human. We'll go back to those things that we ultimately want to do, eat and have sex and be around each other you know, in a non-sexual way. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it's those things that we want to do. No, definitely. I think one of the things that inspired me to do this podcast actually was um, a research paper that I saw where it said that it had been shown that just working a few hours a week boosted mental and emotional health. And I entered this conversation with you two thinking, having an idea in my head of what work is, like work, like slaving away, doing a job, just maybe to get a paycheck. Maybe some people enjoy it more than others. But the way you've framed this and the way you've um, described what our future might look like, I suppose our work could be a case of not necessarily slaving away at one thing, but perhaps just being more human or just having those interactions or being work in itself, I suppose, might look completely different to what I've entered this subject thinking it was. And um, yeah, you've definitely totally. opened my eyes on that. Well, I yeah. think that's the scary thing that folks in the work world, oh, sorry for jumping, but I think, I remember when I started working and <laughs> this, is, this is crass, what I'm getting ready to say, but a lot of the culture of work, uh, at least when I started working was one of trying to figure out how you could become most human. You know, the, the best executive was always the most human person, but who also actually enjoyed what, you know, he or she was doing at work. Uh, and at the same time, there were a bunch of other people who were sort of being intimidated into being there. I remember an executive telling me, you never get to the executive suite unless we know like all the skeletons in your closet uh, because we need leverage over you. And then, you know, another better executive telling me, again, as like a 20 year old who was on the fast track, which I think was the majority of my career. But they would talk about, you know, the better, the best executives that I ever met would talk about how they loved what they do because they were solving problems. And I think that some people will toil away to solve problems. I don't think that that will ever go away because uh, as Peter said, like we, we have, the best of us have really big questions about how we do things. But, you know, I don't think that we'll run out of questions because, well, the multiverse is expanding and, and we'll build ourselves off of this planet. Uh, I don't know, that may sound a bit wonky and overly futuristic, but if Elon Musk is talking about it and endorsing people like Andrew Yang, surely the rest of us can be talking about it as well in the regular normal lexicon. Yeah, dream big. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, look at half the self-help section in the bookstore is devoted to the proposition that you should find meaning and passion for your work and that you can do something that earns you money at the same time as being something that you're uh, so excited and engaged with that you would do it for nothing if you could. So those all 
argue against the idea that work should be something that you don't like doing to begin with. And the more that we can develop that, the higher our society climbs. Now, we do a, a very poor job, I think, of rewarding those kind of things at the moment. Sometimes we take advantage of that. So people like kindergarten teachers and firefighters get poorly compensated relative to their their value because everyone knows that they enjoy doing it. So uh, we take advantage of them collectively. There yeah. are some people, Silicon Valley people, will go to work 90 hours a week because they really love hacking that stuff. And we do pay them for that because they drive a large part of the engine of capitalism at the moment. So I, I, I think we, at some point, got to start looking at, does work have to be something that you don't enjoy? That's got to be a grind. There's a lot of jobs that in that category. But if we get machines to do those, should we abandon this idea that that you have to do something that's not good for you uh, or that you don't like and that, that somehow that brings uh, some mental and emotional health benefits? Right. I think that the market that could proliferate from the freedom that people have to reject certain types of work will also incentivize us to build solutions for that work that we have floundered at building thus far. And I can think across a uh, many sectors uh, and think about work that people just simply don't want to do. But giving them the freedom to say what they want, won't do will actually incentivize us building the sort of solutions that we absolutely need. And I'm, I'm specifically right now thinking about transportation and other things. Like, again, I'm in Michigan this week. And it's funny you mentioned a fireman and a teacher. I'm at my, my brother-in-law and sister's house right now. He's a fireman. And she's a teacher. And I was going to drive over here. But uh, because I read way too much news now, you know, as a politician, I just thought, oh, my God, I'm going to kill myself driving across Pennsylvania to stop in Ohio and in Michigan. So I've been flying everywhere. <laughs> but I would love if there were trains. I would love if there were trains, man. Anyway, I think it's, it's an opportunity to what Peter's saying. If we can, and it's, again, it's more of a moral decision. If we can decide to indemnify people for their participation in the economy so that we can build real solutions instead of faux solutions to the gaps that we have in the economy. Mm -hmm. Per the market of labor available, we're diminishing labor available even, and I think we'll be in a much better place. But it has to be a conversation first around the idea that people have value. And right now, our politic, our sociology is not one that is very affirmational. It is very mm -hmm. aspirational. You know, people want to be Donald Trump and or Barack Obama. You know, even though they may be slightly different in their politics, they both sold us a similar thing. I am the tallest man in the room who can solve things that you could not possibly. And that does nothing for the rest of us who are short and round and colorful. And so our politics have to change in regards to how we tell people what they have, what value they have. And if we can tell them, in a non-abstract way, then I think we have a winning message. And uh, that's, that's the work. And, and I think it all comes down to story. What, can we find a compelling story? Because there are some mm -hmm. political ideologies that thrive upon telling a story of division and lack and propagating and uh, prolonging that lack because they ah. feed off the discontent of people who have become disadvantaged. They have a vested interest in keeping them disadvantaged. And I'm, I'm really glad to be on this discussion with James, who's positioned at ground zero of finding out what do we do next? And 
to, to actually make a difference. We've talked a lot about utopia and which is almost by definition impossibly far in the future, but I'd like to know what's something we could do tomorrow. Right, thank you. you I, don't know, I don't know if I'm gonna blush or cry over here. I think I may be a little exhausted and drinking a lot of coffee, but no, I think, yeah, something we can definitely do tomorrow is, well, I think the UBI is upon us and not per the difficult rhetorical exercise that we have as politicians. And that's why, you know, I, I really, I admire, I met with Andrew Yang a while ago to talk about strategically how to answer questions when people ask, how do you pay for it? And I, I love what he's doing because he's front running all of us uh, and allowing us to have this conversation right now that a lot of us have been working on for at least from my camp the past 15 years. I think the things that we can get achieved tomorrow or right now before utopia hits, right? <laughs> Let's say that's way off, are a real payment, a payment out to people. And we can validate that payment out as something that they deserve. Like my campaign slogan is we owe us. And in my district, we're mostly talking about the concept of ownership and we're challenging people to think about themselves as valuable. So whereas most politicians have a villain, right? Donald Trump's villain is immigrants. Bernie Sanders' villain is corporations. My villain is us. And when I say we owe us, it's not just about we owe us $1,000 a month. It's also we owe us enough courage to insist on living a dignified life. And that means the first things first is we have to sort of respect ourselves and not say, well, I could be this banker and be better than I am right now. It's like, no, nah, I'm a barista and I am good. I don't have to work at Goldman Sachs to be awesome. I'm probably underpaid and that guy's probably overpaid because I have purple hair and I influence the world every time I step outside or whatever that means. <laughs> and so the thing that we can achieve tomorrow is I think we can make the economy more buoyant by putting money in people's hands instead of programs. So if I give everyone $1,000 a month in my district, it would be about 500 million bucks for the people of my district, the adults, the people over 18. And that's different than saying, I want to build an infrastructure program. You have to apply for grants to build buildings based on the 500 million bucks that I'm going to put in a bucket. And a lot of local politicians have discretionary budgets and influence over bigger federal budgets around that size. This is saying, I'm going to put the money in your hand and I'm going to further empower your autonomy and your choice because I think you're worthy. And I don't think that we'll get everybody on day one, but I think we can get 70% of the people to believe that they are valuable. And that's what's really important. And so I think if that's the immediate action, I think that the actions tomorrow that people become generally more peaceful with each other, with whoever the other is, whether the other is a religious other or gender other or ethnic other, or even in my in New York, everyone speaks a different language. So that otherizes people as well. So I think that's the work is to get to a point where I can say Peter and I may be different. We can still like each other. We don't have to hang out every second of every day, but we have enough reprieve where we don't want to attack each other because we feel like we have absolutely nothing. And right now that's what's happening. If I see Peter get anything from the world, all I'm doing is thinking about what I'm not getting from the world. And I'm jealous because there's an inherent scarcity there. And that is the most dangerous thing about markets that are poorly regulated. And I'm a fan of markets. I just think we can do them better. I'm a capitalist. I just think we can do it better. 
Well, and especially markets that tilt so much money towards one segment of the population. Um, there was something from an economic institute that said that CEO pay increased 940 percent from 1978 to 2018, and the worker pay increased 12 percent over the, the same period. Now, did the CEOs become that much better at their job, create that much more value? Is that earned in some way, or, or have they figured out how to game the system? I, I know where I'd put my money on that. Right, so you have to right. tell a story that changes the way the economy actually functions. We have to, if we're transitioning to an information-based economy, we have to look at the quality of information that we're spreading around and whether it tells the truth. I agree. I agree. I think, so again, I'm in Detroit today. I've got an event here tomorrow afternoon. And look, Mary Barr, who's the CEO of General Motors, I grew up tinkering on Chevys and I started my career working at Daimler Chrysler, who's like their sort of little brother company. She makes 253 times what her average employee makes. And I know that in 2008, taxpayers like me subsidized the rebirth of, of her company, with which she was an executive at the time. And I'm not saying that the boss is ever, you know, not worth two or three or 10 times maybe as much as the regular employee. But to be 200 plus times what the other employees are worth is too much. You know, I think Jeff Bezos is probably most definitely worth $50 million because of the amount of risk that he's been able to take on to build Amazon, but he's not worth $150 billion. The rest of that money is ours. And quite frankly, we have to have the sort of moral fortitude to argue these people back and say, this is ours. And it really is about the ownership class. When I was going to B school in the mid 2000s, mentors would tell people like me, kids like me who had the opportunity that you absolutely must go to, to the right school, build the right network, leave, start a company, sell it to a bigger company. You will never work your way up to being a millionaire. You have to sort of leverage your way in there. And so for the few of us who know how to build institutions, which is a skill set, by the way, and it shouldn't be regarded differently than any other skill set. Some people through the rigor of life, have become good entrepreneurs or good process engineers. They should be paid for that, but they should be not paid an astronomical amount for leadership as a skill set because other things as a skill set that are not leadership are still valuable to make companies go around. I think we're overvaluing the ownership class. In the companies that I've started, and I've started 12 of them and five still exist, I own too much of every single company I've ever started. And I'm trying to figure out a more methodological way to get that money back into the hands of the people of the economy. It can't be philanthropy. That doesn't work. It's too biased. It actually circumvents democracy to say I'm a big philanthropist. I get to make all the decisions. That's whack, for lack of better words. Yeah. I, I think we've really exposed here the level of interest that there is in this. And, and I, I find it replicated in everyone that I talk to, all the groups, and they're really diverse. High school students, retired seniors, and people in all kinds of professions all want to engage with this because they sense that, that change is coming and that we collectively don't know where we're going or what we're going to do about it. Everyone is interested and everyone wants to do something about it and help. Yeah, I agree. It's going to reach a boiling point, I think. I think um, this, this pressure and the disparity that we've spoken about, not only to the disparity between the, the top of a company and the lower level employees of a company, but also 
the people, like you say, the classes. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. And that's why I get very excited whenever I see like a new country or a new city or a new state is um, experimenting with UBI. And uh, I'm probably going to make you blush again, James. So it's a good thing on the podcast. <laughs> but um, I'm very glad that politicians like yourself and Andrew Yang are working with a strong knowledge of technology and a strong knowledge of economics to help bring us to this one day perhaps utopian future but until then we'll just have to keep having these conversations and i have to say fellas this has been a fantastic conversation i think um dare i say it's one of the best episodes we've had and potentially one of the most insightful conversations i may have ever had (laughs) so um thank you so much for joining me um and if our listeners did want to hear more from you or to get more of your insights, how can they contact you on Twitter or follow you on Twitter or social media? Um, James and Peter, James, would you like to share with our listeners? Oh, yeah. Uh, first, thank you both. This was plain old fun. I, I, I'm loving it. Um, my Twitter is JFKII, and I think Instagram and Facebook are just James Felton Keith, like the at sign JFKII. Yep, I'm on the internet. <laughs> How can people find you? Uh, and I am, uh, I'm on Twitter as, uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm on Twitter as Peter J. Scott. And I am also on the web at humancusp.com, humancusp.com. Fantastic. Excellent. Fellas, thank you so much for your time today and your wisdom more than anything. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Good news. So this good news story really resonated with me. Uh, Personally because, well, it's about Burning Man. And for anyone that knows me, knows that I do really enjoy Burning Man. I've been a few times and I love it. So if you don't know what Burning Man is, it's uh, basically a community that comes together temporarily for one week in the Nevada desert. It consists of roughly around 80,000 people. I'm not sure. Uh, That's from what I remember from when I went or have been since 2016. So it's, it's been a while. Maybe it's got bigger but essentially it's a temporary community that comes together to just to try out and experiment a different form of life and a different form of culture in a very very different community so according to geekwire black rock labs is the innovation arm of the burning man organization it focuses on clean power and sustainability solutions to test extreme conditions in the nevada desert in order to scale them beyond burning man and the organization works on everything from biofiltering porta potties to solar power. One of the startups bringing their tech to the event is Vancouver-based Portable Electric, which sells and rents solar power stations designed to replace gas and diesel generators. The company first rolled out its solar generators at regional Burning Man events in Canada, according to the founder, Mark Rabin, who said, there's new technology, let's get it out there and see what it can do. That's going to be a huge thing in moving Burning Man forward. Whether it's regional burns or the large burn down in Nevada, we have to start transitioning as a global organization because if Burning Man can't do it, what does that say about the rest of the planet? And this is actually quite funny because um, I remember seeing a conversation in one porta potty one year which said we about how we need to save the planet and how we need to look after it. And there was a, a string of comments below and one of them was like, then why are we all here using these all this electricity, all this plastic and all this, all this rubbish? And uh, I, I thought they made a pretty good point and it is it's kind of ironic. So hopefully BlackRock Labs can roll out some clean tech and um, make Burning Man a little bit cleaner and then eventually the rest of the world.
that's our show. Thank you for listening. And you're still listening, so I'm guessing you like the show. And if you did, please follow the podcast on Spotify. And if you're an iTunes user, please leave a review with more stars than an Avengers film. And for anyone that does give a five-star review, I'll endeavor to give them a shout-out at the end of some of our upcoming episodes. You can also go to sociable.co and subscribe to the Sociable newsletter to stay up to date with all our shows and receive some great articles. Just go to our main page, scroll down and enter your name and email in a little box below the podcast. Thank you and have a great day. Bye.